On February 26, 2014, the Ash Center hosted a film screening of the documentary The Unknown Known and a discussion with Oscar-winning filmmaker Errol Morris. The film profiles former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Following the screening, film director Morris participated in a discussion moderated by Archon Fung on the making of the film, Morris's impressions of Secretary Rumsfeld, and dimensions of executive power. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy Public Dialogue series, celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Well, I know I have a, a ton of questions I want to ask, but I think it's only fair to open it up to the audience um, if people have things on their mind, issues that the movie has raised. Um, first question goes to my colleague, uh, Joe Nye. I want to <clears throat> congratulate you on another fine film. Thank you. But uh, having used the fog of war for teaching in my classes for about eight years now, I still regard that as your masterpiece. Uh, and perhaps because I've seen that so many times that uh, I had a slight preference. But uh, the difference, what intrigued me was with McNamara, you had a multi-dimensional character and he exposed dimensions of himself which were really quite extraordinary. With Rumsfeld, I felt I got one, one and a half dimensions. And that might be I the think nature being generous. of the nature of the, <laughs> the nature of the man. But I also felt at points that he was toying with you. For example, his answers on the lessons of Vietnam was a non-answer. His answers to your question about Shakespeare, and again, a non-answer. I didn't know to what extent, as you look at the two films and the two men that you worked on, do you feel that the that there was it was the difference of the men that made the difference, or was it the in the sense that McNamara was self-introspective and willing to expose things, and that Rumsfeld really was toying with you the whole time through? In other words, what what as you just as a artist who's done a superb job of both of them, but as you look at your work, uh, how do you judge the two films? Is it because of the two men, or is it something in the technique, or what, how would you yourself rate the two films? Central to your question is this issue, was Rumsfeld toying with me, quote unquote, can you hear me now, or is that still a problem? Is this? It's hot. Yeah. Um, but can you hear me? Yes. Um, to me, it's not clear that he's toying with me. Um, I, I would have to say it's not clear to me what's going on in this film. Still not clear to me. Um, you call these non-answers. I think that is a correct way of describing most of his responses. Uh, McNamara, at one point in the fog of war, near the end of the fog of war, he's giving these lessons, and he talks about uh, never answer the question that you have been asked. Always answer the question you wish had been asked. This is something very, very, very different. 
it's not answer the question you wish you'd been asked, it's say nothing. Um, and it doesn't just simply encompass, uh, for example, the answer to the question, what did you learn from what is for me one of the worst debacles in American history, the Vietnam War. What did you learn from the Vietnam War? My wife has probably characterized the difference between these two men better than anybody. Um, we knew McNamara. McNamara came to our house in Cambridge several times for dinner. She called McNamara the Flying Dutchman, the man traveling the world, searching for redemption and never finding it. To me, it's one of the uh, most despairing lines in any film I've ever made when McNamara says, rationality will not save us. Think of who's saying that line, um, a person who based his entire life on rationality and the belief that there were rational solutions uh, to political problems. <coughs> Rumsfeld she called the Cheshire Cat. Uh, the, all you're left with in the end is this infernal grin. <laughs> Alice is famous for saying in Alice in Wonderland, I've seen a cat without a grin, but I've never seen a grin without a cat. And it characterizes Donald Rumsfeld, this infernal smile. I thought for a while he's hiding something, and then there was a terrible thought. He's hiding nothing. There's nothing there to hide, simply because there's nothing there. It's all vanity. It's all a kind of performance art. It's all gobbledygook. I've just finished um, uh, another essay for the New York Times, uh, one of my longish essays, 12,000 words this time, on the philosophy of Donald Rumsfeld. It's different than the movie. It's given me an opportunity to really think about all of these expressions that Rumsfeld used again and again and again and again. The known known, the known unknown, the unknown known, the known known, known unknown, and on and on and on and on. Uh, the absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. Another um, weakness is provocative. Um, Pearl Harbor was a failure of the imagination. Um, it goes, you know, like, um, I call it a kind of, of uh, Chinese fortune cookie philosophy. Um, that um, close inspection is nonsense. And yet people fell for it. That's a good question. How did that happen? <laughs> Um, yeah, over here. In the I'm not corner. sure I answered your question, but it helps. I think it'll. I think it'll keep coming up. <laughs> people will always say they like the fog of war because people have this unfettered appetite for redemptive stories. 
even though Fog of War isn't a redemptive story, they somehow think it is because McNamara says that he made terrible mistakes. Um, Rumsfeld will never, ever, 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 ever go there. And it's not because he's hiding something. It's because he feels completely happy with the job he's done. He's delighted with himself and probably always will be. Hi. Yeah, over here. Sir, hi, I'm Ann McDonald, and thank you for, and congratulations on such a fantastic film. And well, thank you. I think with thanks to Secretary Rumsfeld, Secretary Rumsfeld for great eloquence as well. Um, I, in, in, at the beginning of your remarks, you said that you were um, looking to, for public service, provide a reason for why we went into Iraq and to hopefully get back from Secretary Rumsfeld. I'm just interested to know why you would pick him for that purpose versus Secretary Cheney, I mean, uh, Vice President Cheney or President Bush, who it seems like from my study had more of a direct influence on that decision. I don't know who had more of an influence. My feeling is that, now here you're studying this question of presidential power. Um, I think there were two essential power grabs in this story. You could even think of them as putches, except this isn't Germany, this is America. Um, two unelected presidents, uh, Gerald Ford, uh, where Rumsfeld served as chief of staff, and by the time Ford left office, Cheney and uh, he were running the world. They had assumed positions of enormous power. Um, and uh, once again in the Bush administration, an unelected president, at least in his first term, um, uh, <coughs> Cheney and Rumsfeld once again in control of the government. That's a very frightening thought. I guess Cheney at least was elected, kind of, sort of, to the extent that Bush was the first time around. Yeah. Oh, uh, say your name in school. You asked why, why uh, Rumsfeld. He was, in many ways, the poster boy for the Iraq War. He's Secretary of Defense. Bush, I, I see as a kind of, at least in that first term, is not in control of really much of anything. Cheney? I don't know. You pick and choose. I chose, because I had done a Secretary of Defense before, I chose... So, salt and pepper shaker idea. I, I decided to have a <laughs> match set. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm from the Kennedy School and the law school. Um, I mean, I wish you, I'm sure you've interviewed all kinds of people who are difficult to interview because they're evasive and don't answer your questions and that sort of thing. But you said at the top of the event that he was particularly, it was a particularly frustrating or difficult, I think you used the word difficult interview. Was there something distinctive about interviewing him that made him difficult that wasn't apparent um, I would say a number of things. He seemed totally unaware of himself, which I find 
exchange. Um, the second day, he had come up to Boston. I filmed him here. He's telling the story about Saddam Hussein. It's in the movie. How he had become so used to being worshipped, statues everywhere, um, that um, he had become, in Rumsfeld's words, in the end, all pretend, quote unquote. When he says this, and I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, I wonder, I guess this goes back to the question of toying or not toying with me. Um, I wonder, does he have any sense that what he just said could be applied to him? Is there any level of, of self-awareness or reflection? You talked about McNamara being a singularly reflective individual, which in fact he was. Um, I wouldn't describe Rumsfeld as a singularly unreflective individual. Um, I interviewed his wife, who is a really lovely, lovely person. And eloquent, honest, um, sympathetic. I never intended to use her in the film, but I wanted to interview her anyway. And clearly, uh, Donald Rumsfeld wanted me to interview her. And she talked for about two hours. It was really moving. She goes back to the dressing room. He's seated in a folding chair just outside the dressing room. And she goes into the room, and he gets up to go back uh, to continue the interview. And he tells me, it's really nice to listen to someone who thinks before speaking. <laughs> I think, okay, <laughs> I get it. It's sort of, you know, how do I really, really know? Um, there's a kind of, you know, people always talk about poker tells, the, you know, the, 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 that gesture that reveals, you know, What's in the hand they're holding? Um, you know, is it uh, you know the the full house, um, the royal flush, or is it nothing? And to me, the smile was the tell. It just—it's a smile of self-satisfaction. And to say that it was used somewhat inappropriately as an understatement. Torture memos. I mean, it's endless. Never read them. I think he's telling me the truth. Why would I read those damn torture memos? Um, I say, really? Really? Never read the torture memos? By the way, I have read them. Um, And then, you know, he's so pleased, he says, well, chalk that one up, you know? Um, it's the infernal smile again and again and again and again and again. I had him read the Haynes memo. By the way, none of these memos, or most of these memos are not public material. He gave us access to his snowflakes. And since he would record it over most of them, if not all of them, you know, 
he just had the transcripts, and he very kindly agreed to read them for me. Now, this is Donald Rumsfeld performing Donald Rumsfeld's snowflakes for the camera. And he said he would read anything that he had written. He didn't want to read anything that someone else had written. But we gave him the Haynes memo, which, of course, wasn't written by Donald Rumsfeld. It was written by Haynes. Although it's infamous for the notation <laughs> on the memo where he says he stands for hours every day, why can't the detainees stand uh, for hours as well? And he started reading it. I don't know why he read it. I, I have a theory why he started reading it. He, he, um, he maybe never had read it before, carefully. And he started reading it, and in the end of it, he sort of uh, stops for a moment and says, good grief, that's a pile of stuff. As if he's shocked. Oh. You know, all of that um, enhanced interrogation, that seems maybe a little nasty. <laughs> or the response to being told that the Schlesinger report says that these techniques migrated from Guantanamo to Iraq and to Afghanistan. After saying that it, they did not, then he, he hears the, the paragraph from the Schlesinger report, and he says, I would agree with that. Yeah. Is that toying? I would say no. I think there's this idea that he was so gifted in these press conferences that he, um, the word that someone used just a moment ago is eloquent, um, that he was, um, I would probably use a slightly different word, but let's just say for the sake of argument, eloquent, well-spoken. Um, that it's assumed that he was actually hiding something. That's wishful thinking. I have a much darker view of it. Yeah, um, if you could identify yourself. Uh, you mentioned that you, sp you, spent, about thir you spent 30 hours uh, interviewing mm. and you crystallized it for an hour and a half. Yes. I want to ask you personally, how long did it take you to put the whole material together before you started the interview? And uh, the, the, the well, it's all based on the interview, yeah. so it started with the interview. I interviews. just want to go a little bit further than that. And how did, it, did you ever touch the, uh, in, in, in that time of the Iraq war, there was a very incident, I thought it was very important, when he fired General Kaczynski. Uh, because he was asking for more troops, 40,000 more troops, and he was fired, and he, at that time there were about 100,000 troops in Iraq. And they said, we are going to go very quick, very short, and very powerful. You know, uh, and, he, and then he you know, displaced Kaczynski and put somebody else in there, never sent the extra troops. And as you know, afterward, the, the, then they had, there was this, what they call the surge, 
uh, you know, uh, uh, scenario where they send another 40,000 after two years of getting beat up. Okay. Did you ever talk to him about that? No. By choice. Um, the first day um, I flew to Washington, I met with Donald Rumsfeld in his offices. And he invited me. This was a very odd thing. Um, he invited me to sit in on interviews that he did with the press. He was doing phone interviews with journalists from Fort Bliss in Texas, and he was on speakerphone. The reporters all asked the same questions. Exactly the same questions, as if like they were... Um, it was something routinized about it. The answers were all the same, too, as if like you were you know, using some kind of infernal vending machine. Um, <laughs> and what were the questions? The questions were, did you really think there were WMD in Iraq? And guess what his answer was? I, I won't reveal the answer. Um, did you really feel that there was an adequate troop strength for the initial invasion of Iraq? I won't reveal the answer to that either. Um, do you feel that adequate preparations had been made for the aftermath of the war? Um, can't reveal that one either, sorry. Um, same question, same answers. And I wondered, I wondered, first of all I decided I'm not going to do that, because I just don't want to. Um, and I wondered, like, what is all of this about, really? Um, what do you expect to hear? What do you expect to learn? Um, what really is the nature of the enterprise? Um, I like to think that I was doing history from, as I like to call it, history from the inside out. History that starts with how he sees himself, how he gives an account of himself and what he did. Um, history through these endless memos. Um, Borges is famous for writing this short story about a man who remembers everything and hence remembers nothing. Well, here's the man who memorializes everything and hence memorializes nothing. Um, this sea of paper, this paper tsunami, if you like, that reveals so very, very, very little. Memos where he says contradictory things, memos which are lists where the feeling is if you list a number of things, at least one of them will prove to be true. Um, various rules and principles, contradictions. My favorite is very near the beginning of the movie. If you don't prepare for war, it can lead to war. And if you do prepare for war, it can lead to war, <laughs> which seems to mean that you're going to end up going to war. Um, as a, uh, a student in philosophy, from you know, first course in logic, you know that from a contradiction, you can prove anything. I wanted to follow up on the uh, memorializing nothing point. Um, I was struck by the lack of 
passion, except in one point when he's talking to the family in the hospital. Mm. And it's, you know, kind of red, white, and blue. But the, the lack of despair or regret, which conveys a, a moral flatness because there's so much to regret. And so were there points where you felt he was passionate, where he really wanted to achieve something or regretted something? And so you know, that's, that's the question. And if there's the lack of that, then it kind of reminds me, it's, a li- it's quite a lot unfair, but I, Hannah Arendt, I think it's in Eichmann in Jerusalem, has this phrase, the banality of evil, right? The, a very high-placed leader, you think all of these exalted things must be extraordinary and ends up not being. Um, what did you think of the man as a leader and the passions or lack thereof? And we supposed to make of that? Uh, I feel in many ways badly about the things that I say about him because I think I don't know he was kind enough to give me all of this time and to make this film with me um, I am horrified in the end. Um, I remember I would get all of these calls from people worried about how I would treat Robert McNamara. Um, the idea, if I'm opposed to the Vietnam War, which I always was, that I couldn't never listen to this man dispassionately or fairly. Um, I actually wanted to listen to Donald Rumsfeld, but as this process went on and on and on, I just, uh, Orwell is famous for talking about how language could be used to manipulate people and um, Big Brother could use language to control uh, vast numbers of people. Rumsfeld uses language in a way that's really quite different. I would not call it Orwellian. Um, he uses language as a kind of smokescreen to hide reality, even from himself. When he goes into his long disquisitions um, on words, it's almost as if he's running from reality as if somehow the dictionary, the Pentagon Dictionary, or whatever other dictionary you want to imagine, can provide sanctuary from what he actually has done. I just was at the Berlin Film Festival, and there was a Q&A like this following a screening of the movie. And someone in the audience asked me, if this is like um, Humpty Dumpty's theory of language, I don't know if you're familiar with this passage in Through the Looking Glass, but Humpty Dumpty instructs Alice that words can mean whatever I choose them to mean. Uh, basically, I will decide. Um, and I thought about it for a moment. I thought, this isn't really, this certainly, to be truthful, there are elements of the Humpty Dumpty theory of language here. But this is more like the Jabberwock. <laughs> Um, this is language as word salad, the concatenation of words that are seemingly meaningful, but on closer inspection, 
mean nothing. The epistemologist from hell. <laughs> yeah, back here. Hi, my name is Peggy Nelson. I work at the business school, and um, I thought the film was kind of you and Rumsfeld fencing. So I was interested in your opinion. Who do you think won the film? Um, I'll <laughs> let you decide. <laughs> um, uh, well, Tim's on the, this side, so maybe front row, right in the center. What if we both end up going to hell? <laughs> Part two. No exit. No exit. Yeah. See, uh, you alluded to the two power grabs, uh, one during the administration and one during the Bush administration. Uh, Successful power grabs. One of the reasons or uh, umbrella is happening is implications for democracy. And we're one of the strongest democracies uh, in terms of institutions and so on in the world. And when, when, when personalities like these take over uh, control, which ultimately means taking over the control of, of what goes around in the world, and hundreds of thousands of people die, uh, five, hundred, hundred, thousands of miles away, what is the? What do you think are the implications? Are we bargaining as a democracy that personalities such as these can, from time to time, take over? Um, can I answer that? Go? Yes. I was executive producer of a film I'm very proud of this year, The Act of Killing which I hope will win an Oscar on Sunday. Um, which, among other things, is about historical amnesia, historical forgetting. And many people look at the film and they think, well, how could people forget about the death of somewhere between half a million and a million people in their midst? Um, I think the implicit answer is, oh, well, it's a third world country. These things can happen. But my question is, how is our country really any different? Um, in my more cynical moments, I often say that, that the study of history is this, this, uh, the study of the denial of history. And we live in an era, and I think this is a very, very important part of our democracy, um, where bad things have been done and no one is held accountable. No one. It's considered to be ill-advised, politically impossible, whatever. Um, but no one is really held accountable. If these people really did take us to war for no good reason, and I don't really care. If you ask me what I think, did Donald Rumsfeld believe that there were a WMD? I think he did. I think the scary thing about him is that he's able to convince himself very easily of anything that he really wants to believe. Um, his justification in this film for why Powell testified as he did before the United Nations is that 
He really believed it. Well, that's great, you know, that's comforting that, you know, he, in your opinion, was not lying. But if memory serves me correctly, we went to war on the basis of a lot of this false stuff. And someone should be held accountable for it. I don't find the plea that I really believed it totally satisfying, even if true. Back here, in the, yeah, in the white jacket. It wasn't in the film like a lot of things, but I was really curious to know if you ever asked Rumsfeld about that uh, Pentagon uh, press conference when he suggested that the Palestinian territories weren't occupied and that the settlements were illegal. He was apparently quite close to Sharon. What role did the uh, Israel lobby play in the Pentagon policy making uh, around Iraq and uh, in Rumsfeld's tenor in general? Again, I was more interested. Um, I can't tell you how many audiences. Uh, I haven't done this that many times, but everybody has an agenda. Everybody feels, why didn't you ask question X or question Y? Um, and the, really, the simple answer is because I didn't. Uh, I couldn't ask every question. Uh, and also because I was interested in something different. I was interested, again, in how Rumsfeld uh, imagines himself and what he did. Um, in every interview that I do, I, too, am a vending machine, of course. Every interview I do, someone says, um, well, why do you think he agreed to do these interviews? I think the answer really is in the film, but I'm asked it anyway. Uh, and of course, the question is asked at the very end of the film, very directly. Why are you talking to me? Uh, and he says, that's a vicious question. And, um, and basically, he says, you know, I, I'll be darned if I know, followed by the, the infernal grin. Um, I think that tells me a lot. So, you know, whether the United States' foreign policy is being run by the Israeli lobby was not part of my agenda. Yes, back there. And then I think we should stop. I don't want to outwear my welcome here. Yeah. Well, I just want to pick up on this last issue. Tomer, so, identify yourself. Uh, my name is Tomer. I'm a visiting fellow at the I came to the movie with, with the question you just ended on, at the end of the movie with, like, why would he in, be interviewed with you, especially since the fog of war became such a lightning rod for a lot of liberals in, in a way that it seemed, I think, clear that if he were to do this movie with you, it, it might have a, a result that he might not be satisfied with. And I was waiting <laughs> the entire movie for that question, and when he came, and he says, you know, I'll, I'll be darned if I know. And I'm, I'm a little dissatisfied with, with that. Well, I'm, you should be. But also, I'm also juxtaposed with... But that's not my fault. That's his fault. <laughs> but it's trying to decipher the character. I think you're trying to decipher the character of Donald Rumsfeld, the way he perceives himself. 
and try to juxtapose that with the Machiavellian figure who orchestrated the Halloween uh, massacre, whatever we call the the, light, the night of long nights of the Ford <laughs> administration. I mean, it seemed it's you know you call him a performance artist or you you know you know well spoken, but there seems there has to be something. Else going on. <laughs> right, and, I, I would say I mean, we, we were talking about this, uh, my, uh, my editor and my, my research associate, on the, on the way back to our house during the screening. And, you know, what to make of all of this? I mean, of, of, of I mean, think of these answers. Um, what do we learn from Vietnam? Damned if I know, or he wouldn't say damn, darned if I know. Um, that's a vicious question. Um, it's, it's clearly deflection. Toying, I don't know. Um, there's something about pure ambition here. Almost raw during the making of the movie, we would argue about this. Is this ideology at work? Some kind of um, with Cheney, I feel that there is ideology at work. There's something underneath all of it. There's some kind of infernal set of principles. Um, with Rumsfeld, I feel it's just raw ambition. And so the question is, how could he write this this thesis at Princeton, um, advocating the limitation of presidential power? Uh, and then become Donald Rumsfeld, the Donald Rumsfeld we all know and love. And the answer is, I think, really quite simply, that he, he was always espousing pretty much the same thing again, which was, you know, he was a wrestler. He was legendary for the fireman's carry. You pick him up, you throw him on the mat, and you pin him. And um, uh, it's a kind of brute force idea of foreign policy. And when given an opportunity to put it into practice, we see the results. I don't think there's some kind of sophisticated idea at work here. And maybe this just shows my inherent limitations, or if you like, my lack of imagination. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I see him as opportunistic, ambitious. I mean, I'm saying, I mean, it's just, I'm saying things that are really inherently obvious. So, are you sick of me? <laughs> I think people could stay a long time, and you should stay a little bit longer because there's still uh, some pizza outside, and I. Uh, well, I wanted to thank you, you all for that. coming to the screening tonight. Thank you very much.